for this. I don't actually do the job of actually educating you. Well, then I'm already setting you up. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher. I teach in the Los Angeles area. This is my 16th year in the classroom. And this, of course, is All the Above, your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to education. We appreciate you watching us on YouTube. Do consider giving us that thumbs up if you enjoy what you're seeing. And if you're listening to the podcast on the go, when you have a moment, please consider reviewing and, and rating us so that we could work those algorithms and, and get this show into the feeds of more education-minded folks. Now, um, Jeff, we've spent the last several weeks looking at matters pertaining to COVID-19 and its impact on school closures and distance learning and all of that. But the most recent episode, we took a look at diversity and inclusion within the teacher teacher workforce. And, you know, we haven't really talked about higher ed that much recently, but I don't want to like not talk about the COVID stuff. And we just talked about teacher diversity. We got to keep that in there. So Jeff, I'm wondering, is there a way that we could talk about matters pertaining to diversity and inclusion and COVID-19 and higher education somehow together in this episode? Because that's, that's what I'm fiending for today, Jeff. Well, Manuel, then uh, you are in luck because that's what we're gonna do. We have an amazing guest with us today, someone that, um, that frankly is gonna help us have like a little bit of a graduate school reunion uh, here, here mm. on the show. Um, we have a, really an old friend and a, just an incredible educator, uh, Dr. Richard Reddick, who is the Associate Dean for Equity, Community Engagement and Outreach at the College of Education at University of Texas at Austin. And yes, that is, a, that is quite a mouthful. Um, but trust, trust me, the mouthful is going to be worth it. Um, Dr. Reddick is, uh, is a brilliant scholar, a brilliant practitioner, someone that um, I think is really going to help us like kind of uh, speak eloquently to, uh, to just the kind of issues you were describing, right? Because we, of course, are, are so deep in all the, the K-12 issues. But, um, you know, I know parents of college students out there are are certainly feeling it right now, right? Because you've had like that empty bedroom in your house is not empty anymore, right? And you you all of a sudden got a twenty year old living with you once again, and um, you know that is that's just such an issue that um, that so many families across the country are grappling with. And then, of course, parents of high school students who are getting ready to go to college have all kinds of questions about. So we're going to really kind of uh, peel back the, the, the cover on uh, these issues that COVID-19 has brought us in higher education. And of course, in true all the above fashion, we're going to talk a lot about how these uh, how the shutdowns have impacted um, higher education with a lens on kind of equity and access and issues in education that we we love to talk about. So it's going to be exciting. You definitely don't want to miss it, folks. Dope, dope. Now, Jeff, you know, normally we have the do now where we take a look at recent headlines in education. In our most recent episode, we had we had a really interesting do now talking about everything from electronic shock devices to uh, segregation within uh, within classrooms and 
you know, I would love to to take another look at recent headlines in education. However, given the the level of scholarship that we have in this episode today with Dr. Richard Reddick, I think we should get right to that because there's so much going on with regards to COVID-19 and higher ed and of course his research um, as you just mentioned. So we're gonna we're gonna forego the do now for today and jump right into the seminar featuring Dr. Richard Reddick. Stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you, and I'm just um, incredibly excited to have today's guest with us, not only because he is an incredible scholar, uh, an incredible champion of causes of equity in higher education, but also because once upon a time, uh, he and I were co-chairs of the Black Student Union uh, when I was a young, spry graduate student at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and he was a much wiser, uh, you know, uh, doctoral student shepherding us lowly master students on our way uh, as we learn to become teachers. So it's a pleasure to have this little mini reunion uh, on today's episode and have Dr. Richard Reddick uh, with us today. Welcome, Dr. Reddick, to all the above. Uh, Jeffrey Nanwell, thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely. We're chopping up a little bit. Y'all didn't get to hear that part, but it was great just to catch up with these brothers. Uh, and it's been a minute, but uh, excited to be here and, and overjoyed to be with you guys. So let us tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Reddick before we get into our discussion. Um, he is the Associate Dean for Equity, Community Engagement, and Outreach for the College of Education at the University of Texas at Austin, where he is also an Associate Professor in the Program in Higher Education Leadership. Dr. Reddick is the faculty co-chair for the Institute for Educational Management at Harvard University, where he has also served as visiting associate professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Dr. Reddick has won many awards for his scholarship in teaching, including the Eyes of Texas Excellence Award, the John L. Warfield Center for African and African American Studies Teaching Award, and Dr. Reddick was named Outstanding Community-Based Learning Professor at the 2019 Tower Awards. Dr. Reddick has written numerous books and articles, and his scholarship has been featured by NPR, the BBC, the Associated Press, and the Chronicle of Higher Education. Dr. Reddick earned his master's and doctoral degrees from the Harvard Graduate School of Ed, where he edited the Harvard Educational Review and was co-founder of the Alumni of Color Conference. Dr. Reddick, we are excited to have you with us today, and um, you know, I'm just I'm thrilled that we can have this little reunion and bring it to our audience. And I think Manuel has our our first question for you. Absolutely, I'm ready. So, Dr. Reddick, thank you for taking the time to be with us here today. We know it's the end of the academic year, plus it's a global pandemic, so you have who knows how many things that you have to get to. I don't even want to ask what that email inbox is looking like right now. So thank you for taking time out to be here on all of the above. And we thought we would start with the biggest ongoing headline out there, which of course is the COVID-19 crisis and its impact on schools. Now, we've on the show spoken a lot about its impact on the K-12 system. We've talked about grading policies. We've talked about distance learning in general and the challenges there and specifically the challenges related to our EL population. And, and we've, we've covered a lot of different 
angles of this crisis, but we haven't really talked about higher ed very much. So we were wondering if we could start there and ask you, how has this COVID-19 crisis impacted faculty and students in the higher ed realm? And do you think there are any long-term impacts based on what you've seen so far? Well, man, well, you have to start with the easy questions, right? Uh, wow. I mean, yeah, I, I think this whole uh, situation, even to talk about this, because, you know, at one point, Jeffrey's going to be in town for us to do this together. And of course, COVID-19 hit. And so everything's had to be uh, sort of rearranged. So I just want to give a shout out to all the educators who had to, on the fly, just sort of change your whole pedagogy and higher ed in K-12 as well. And in fact, I've been making sure people don't refer to us as being online educators. We've had to innovate and respond to a crisis because most of us didn't design our courses to be taught in this manner. So there's a lot of give and take. There's a lot of adjustments have been made. Um, and I teach a class on social and cultural um, context of education here at UT Austin, graduate students. I have 16 students. And uh, we are talking about this in real terms because we're looking at the social and cultural context of education. So literally, how do schools respond and react to uh, the environment they're in? Uh, and of course, we get to see uh, inequity sort of playing out through all these pieces. So the first thing I noticed is with just with our students, um, for some of our students, you know, they have the resources. When UT quickly decided to go ahead and shut its doors, so to speak, they were able to get, you know, parents or get their own cars, get their stuff packed up and sort of head on back to where they live. We have a number of students who live much further away. who don't have those kind of supports. And so they were kind of in limbo. And in fact, we had to have some accommodations for some students who just couldn't get back. And of course, even things that like, you know, the assumption that people have a stable and safe environment to go back to is not always the case. And so there's been a lot of that adjustment. So I also teach a class that was actually a study abroad course that we were going to get ready to do to go to England this summer. And so, of course, those students were incredibly disappointed. But, you know, just hearing my students talk about, well, you know, now there are, I'm back here with my sibling and my sibling's also in college. We have bandwidth issues because we don't have super high fast internet at my house or we only have a couple of uh, devices we can use. And that's definitely played out. I mean, I think I've seen those kinds of environments. And obviously, uh, for the students who are comfortable coming forward and saying, I need assistance and support, we have a student emergency service at UT Austin that's been amazing. In fact, Dell Computer and Apple Computer have donated computers. So if a student submits a request and says, look, I don't have a laptop or my laptop is not working functionally, they try very hard to make sure they can support the student with that. But as we said, bandwidth, I mean, we're talking about, we just experienced this on this call, right? I was out my porch and luckily my band was fine in the house. But if you have, like literally my parents, they have decent internet, but if I was at their house, I don't know if I'd be able to do Zoom meetings and how efficient it would be. And of course, for my graduate students, many of them are working full-time or working part-time in labs. Labs are closed. Uh, they have kids, many responsible for elders, in fact, I've had at least three students who've had family members pass away uh, because of COVID. Uh, so it's just been catastrophic, to say the least. For some of our students, it's an inconvenience. And there's a lot of, well, you know, it's been inconvenient, but these things are happening. But for some of our students, it's disastrous. I mean, literally, students are telling me, look, um, I got a house payment to make. And I'm not working. And it was already hard when things were working perfectly fine. And so those are really a part of our conversations. Every class I have, we start by talking about, you know, how are you doing? And 
just a chance for people to kind of talk about their mental health, what they're balancing, what they've got going on, but also a chance to talk about the structural issues. And because the course I was telling you about is focused on equity issues, um, we observe what happens in the school districts, what happens uh, for the personnel working in schools, the essential workers, custodians, the cafeteria workers, and so on and so forth. So really, um, my biggest concern, Manuel, is not simply what's happening right now. It's what's going to happen once we sort of, quote unquote, return to normalcy, because I already know that there are people who have been cut from positions that are likely to come back. Uh, and that further perpetuates these issues of inequity, especially communities of color, low-income communities. Um, that's always my focus, my lens, and I'm seeing those things happening right now. Uh, my son is uh, a student at a charter school that uh, really focuses on uh, low-income community kids of color. And we get to see sort of those things every single day. You know, like many schools, they kept the cafeteria open. They deliver meals uh, for students. But of course, you know, there's just so many things going under that. The trauma that people are experiencing is going to be cascading. So a lot like when I started grad school, it was right after 9-11. Um, I can imagine this is the uh, COVID-19 generation where we're going to have a lot of things, the, the issues of uh, surviving trauma uh, and so forth that will be with us for some time. So it's huge. It's just, it's huge. Yeah. It's, it's so fascinating to hear you, to hear you describe that, Rich, because, you know, Manuel and I are both like neck deep in the K-12, uh, you know, slice of this equation. Um, and, you know, really don't necessarily get a lot of opportunity to talk to folks in higher ed about how it's impacting, you know, what, what school at that level looks like. And honestly, listening to you, every single issue you just described are, you know, these are the same issues that, uh, that K-12 schools are grappling with, both from the standpoint of like logistically, how do we completely reinvent school, uh, you know, overnight essentially, and, uh, you know, grappling with that reality of uh, we didn't build it to, <laughs> to operate through Zoom. And so what are we going to do now? Um, and also just the human uh, side of things and, and the real exacerbation of equity challenges that we knew were there before and that are, you know, sort of on hyperdrive uh, under, under these current circumstances. So fascinating to hear that, uh, you know, the, the level of similarity across, uh, you know, our, our kind of different aspects of education. Um, I'm also wondering, Rich, you know, you, you just kind of alluded to like positions and, uh, you know, people's the, the long term impacts uh, of this really getting on on one level, at least to to jobs and and, uh, and personnel. And we on a very recent episode um, just had on a couple of experts to talk to us a bit about issues of diversity in the teacher workforce and um, the extent to which. Uh, you know, our student population is certainly not mirrored by the, the teachers we, we put in front of them and the whole range of issues that, uh, that, that cascades down from that. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the, from a higher ed perspective, you know, how graduate schools of education are and maybe are not, um, you know, helping to address these issues of uh, helping to create, sustain, promote uh, a teacher workforce that that looks more like the students we have in our in our public schools. Hey, Jeffrey, it reminds me of uh, I just wrote an op-ed a couple weeks ago, focusing on sort of the disparities and the impact of, of the COVID nineteen uh, sort of uh, uh, crisis. And uh, you know, I use that famous old quote, you know, when Black America, uh, when White America catches a cold, 
Black America catches pneumonia. And um, that's very much what's happening, right? So this is obviously impacting everybody we're talking about. But for all the communities uh, that have historically been disenfranchised, uh, Latinx communities, uh, Black communities, Native American communities, Asian American communities, those communities are definitely uh, feeling the brunt in different ways, right? And in fact, that same article I talked about, the xenophobia and racism directed towards uh, uh, Asian American folks, but also the fact that in Indian country, we've got these massive health disparities where we don't even know what's happening there. We have no idea how how susceptible those communities are because there's already been a historical infrastructure uh, failure in those communities uh, because we haven't supported and given the appropriate support to those uh, those communities and those folks. And, and, and so, yeah, one thing I'm concerned about is retrenchment, right? So whatever efforts have been made, uh, it's easy to say, well, we've got budget cuts or we've got you know, a crisis, we got to focus on this and sort of move away from those commitments. And that's my real concern, because when you think about it, this is an amazing and incredible chance to sort of invest in infrastructure in the sense that there's going to be such a great need to work with students, to uh, work with uh, folks who've been uh, impacted by this, uh, the counseling centers and so on and so forth. There's going to be such a great need. If we had our priorities correct, you know, governmentally, we'd be investing in that and say, you know, like a new deal, like an educational new deal, uh, a student support new deal. We'd have something like that lined up, but that's not the way the political winds are blowing at this point. So um, my biggest concern is um, a lot of these things, and I always feel like when it comes to addressing equity issues, especially on a racial socioeconomic level, we're very, uh, we're very uh, slow to move on these issues, but man, when things get rough, we were very quick to pull back on those commitments. And so just to give you an example, the College of Education at UT Austin, we've been talking a lot about, like, what is our role as a College of Education at a public flagship university to make sure that we're at the forefront to both disseminate information, but also bring to light inequities and disparities, like use our bully pulpit we have to make sure people don't forget. Because you're like, oh, man, thank God I'm able to go back to the grocery store or I'm able to do this, that, and the other, realizing that. Well, that might be your situation. There are folks in your community who are having an even harder time accessing these pieces. And, you know, one thing that might be a silver lining, I think, uh, Jeffrey, I think about it, is just, just the incredible job. Uh, we've been talking about a lot about the frontline workers, like people working in hospitals. They've been doing amazing work. But that other frontline, the educators, the counselors who are there doing the work, uh, I saw with my own kids, you know, right? Literally, spring break hits. Teachers have to go back, and within a week, they figure out a way to patch together a curriculum that's cohesive, that supports students, uh, looking out to make sure students are feeling that they need what they have, what they need, and supporting families. So that might, and hopefully, will generate excitement about the idea of being an educator because you get to see that it's not simply staying in front of a classroom with a chalkboard. You're actually uh, improving students' lives in a really meaningful way. Um, teachers getting in cars. Um, it's been beautiful too, right? Because every night I see with us graduating class, there are teachers and principals being in cars and driving out to greet students with social distancing, of course, but let them know we're proud of you, we appreciate what you're doing, that kind of thing. So uh, I guess one thing could be is that we might see greater interest. Now that means that we have to think about what systems are in place that prevent that from happening. So we're having a, a very uh, robust conversation in our graduate programs about standardized testing. Like, what role does GRE have in entering students? Because 
it doesn't really correlate strongly to any indicators that have anything to do with success once you finish. And it's actually a gatekeeper for a lot of the folks from those communities that we don't have representation from. I mean, the number of times I've talked to students about, well, Dr. Reddick, I love this program. It sounds like something I'd like to do, but man, at GRE. And I've always said, I mean, it's one part of many things we have to sort of uh, do to get into grad school. But now we're beginning to say, is that even an essential part? Are we more invested in saying, you know, what is your narrative? What's your story? What's your commitment to the community as a indicator of what somebody's worth is going to be? So I'm excited, I guess, about that possibility, that potential. But I'm also cognizant of the fact that this also means that we could lose out on efforts. And I know that oftentimes these um, programs that are designed to uh, draw in more students of color, more first-generation college students and so forth are often on grants. Everything is frozen right now, right? So all those kinds of efforts. It's going to take, I think, visionary leadership from institutional leaders to really say, if we really care about equity, besides just saying it at a, at a speech once a year, we get to actually put resources behind this. And also we have to agitate and provoke the people in state legislatures, the federal government to make sure those commitments are there. Because again, um, if we are, all we've been seeing in the last, and you guys know this, the last 30 years, it's just this, this, this widening gulf uh, between people who are at the highest level economically, socially, and folks who are not. The gulf is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we have to start asking, what kind of society are we if we're one that sort of, sort of is okay with vast disparity, just kind of saying that's the way it is. And of course, as educators, you know, when you're on the front lines talking to students and their families, it's not an effort of, it's not an issue of effort or intelligence. It's just people are structurally bound in such a way that it's impossible to get in the situation until we start thinking about really making investments to make sure that whatever it is, if it's better healthcare, uh, better housing, access to capital, whatever that people need, that it's more uh, accessible, that actually make a better society. Because, you know, uh, the, the side of a society on its, on its knees is one that has gross inequities, right? And all we've been doing for the last 30 years is just watching those inequities get wider and wider and wider. And right now, this is a critical juncture point because there's nothing that will say that it'll kind of collapse unless we are intentional about it. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm glad you pointed out the GRE. One thing that we talked about on the show in previous episodes was the impact that this COVID-19 era has had on standardized testing. And with particular regards to the SAT and the ACT, so the, the largest university systems out here in California have gone ahead and announced that they'll waive the requirement to take the ACT or the SAT for freshman admissions because of this, this crisis. And one thing that I personally am curious about as an educator who is not a big fan of standardized testing is whether or not we'll be able to look back on this era and be able to see that waiving those tests actually didn't have any negative impact on uh, college success. Because I think the idea behind those tests, of course, is that students who score better on those tests are more likely to succeed in college. Now, if we're waiving those tests and we could look back and say, hey, we were able to pick a group of, of freshman admits and we didn't use these tests and it turned out okay, maybe that will be perhaps, maybe in my hope, the beginning of the end of the SAT and the ACT as a requirement for freshman admission. But one thing that you pointed out was this idea of, of principals and schools going around, driving around and uh, meeting their students and trying to have some sort of graduation or, or acknowledgement considering the circumstances. 
Now, my school is one school that that has been doing that and has been, you know, trying its best to sort of meet with students and celebrate them socially distanced, of course, um, to the best extent possible. And as a teacher of juniors and seniors, I know that a lot of my students are about to enter right now a, a historically white institution, um, either in our city or elsewhere. I myself graduated from UCLA, which similar to University of Texas at Austin has a long history of controversy around issues pertaining to diversity and inclusion of, of students and faculty. So we're wondering if you could share with us a little bit about your own thoughts and your own research about the experiences of students and faculty of color at universities, particularly those universities that are uh, predominantly white or historically white. And um, what are some things that colleges are, are, are doing well with regards to that nowadays? And uh, what are some areas that still need to be improved upon with regards to the, the challenges of being a student or faculty member of color at these schools? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so, you know, first of all, I just think that all the things we're talking about, sort of being able to take the time to question what it is that we've historically valued and how it's led to inequities and really challenging ourselves to think if that's necessary, right? So, you know, in my own work, and I did a piece recently in the Journal of Negro Education about Black student leaders with my colleague, uh, Veronica Jones at University of North Texas. And we wrote about the fact, we interviewed a group of uh, African-American student leaders and uh, just sort of asked them about activism and what the consequences were. And of course, you alluded to this as a UCLA grad, as a Texas grad, you know, predominantly white institutions, or historically white institutions, whatever term you want to use, are institutions that were not built with the interest and success of black and brown people in mind, and Asian people, and Native American people, right? Uh, and typically not people who are first generation low income either, right? So they're historically exclusionary institutions that have been sort of designated to sort of serve a very small segment of the, of the population. So a lot of times, it's just a matter of, our students talk a lot about sort of uh, double consciousness, right? Literally having to work in a space where white Eurocentric middle-class normative values were dominant and then having to come over and work with their communities. And, and so certainly um, what's funny is a lot of students said, you know, I didn't really think a lot about my racial or ethnic identity until I got here. And then I realized, man, I stand out, right? Because of residential segregation, right? So, you know, our, our old good friend, uh, Dr. Orfield at when he was at Harvard and was at UCLA, you know, wrote a lot about that, right? The whole issue about disparities in the K-12 system and inequity. So we knew for a fact that a lot of our students were coming to higher education had been in predominantly insert your ethnicity here uh, environments and are coming to a place that has some level of diversity, uh, but is an inclusion is a question, it's probably not. But just really being impressed with these students' ability to figure out that they had to navigate multiple spaces and also the fact they had to be very political, politically savvy. So they knew resources, uh, support came from administration at universities, and they had to build relationships with those people. Many of the people in administration were people of color, right? So people who they could identify with, but also they, were, they realized a lot of those people were in the middle, right? At the very, very top, the people who actually make decisions institutionally weren't always accessible to the students. So they had to understand that the people they worked with administratively were sometimes stuck in this interesting space where they had to sort of support students, work towards student success uh, issues, but at the same time had to respond to institutional climates where people either overtly or covertly said, well, 
those issues for students of color are not predominant. They're not for everybody, right? And in places like the state of Texas, where I live, you know, having the reactionary sort of uh, color mute, to use Michael Pollock's word, uh, discourse in the legislature, we're about supporting all students. Why do we need a program to support Latino students? You know, and, and not understanding the significance of it and importance of that. And I've always told people, I said, one thing that a lot of commentators don't understand about people who are seeking out uh, spaces of support in higher education institutions that are probably white is that they don't get a chance to, like, if you are part of the Black Student Union or the Comunidad Latino or the Asian American student group, you are still at a PWI. That never goes away. So you could try to have all the Black, Brown, Latinx uh, experiences as you ever could think of, you are still operating in a PWI context. So those students are never going to be quote unquote balkanized in their communities. They're always going to be sort of navigating those two spaces. And ultimately most students, you know, come to a point where they are able to sort of comfortably work in one space and come to another or find places where they emerge and frankly um, help some of their uh, white peers. And it's something we always talk about, right? This issue, this extra burden or the work I do, uh, cultural taxation, right, of students of color who were often there to deal with microaggressions and general ignorance, students from majority backgrounds who've never been in interactions with people like them. Oh, well, I thought people from your background, your, your identity were all poor or not educated because I've watched media accounts. And of course, those students are there hearing those conversations. I mean, a number of students have come to me and said, we talked about immigration. Everybody in the classroom turned around and looked right at me. We talked about slavery. Everybody turned around and looked right at me, right? So those kinds of things still happen in higher education. Um, one of my mentors at Harvard, uh, Dean Whitla, often talked about the fact, like, the reason he did work on diversity in higher education is that diversity in K-12 had become so difficult to achieve that you don't really get a chance to have people in the same spaces interacting. And so it typically happens at the higher ed level. And it's funny because a lot of times students will say things like, well, my gosh, this institution is not very diverse. That's true. But it might be the only institution in society where you actually have people coming from very different uh, racial and ethnic backgrounds coming together uh, and actually working on learning and living together. And it's happening when people are 18 years old and already have a lot of racist baggage and crap in their minds. So then you have to start working on dismantling those kinds of concepts. And they get to work on doing things like advancing their uh, their identities in different ways. Yeah, Rich, uh, so so much to unpack there. And you know, Manuel and I both obviously work in the in the K twelve space, and to a large extent, our our business is sending as many of our students as possible to to institutions like yours. And both of us working in a context where our student populations are overwhelmingly low income and predominantly black and Latinx, uh, when we look at the data for persistence and graduation, we see there are there are just massive gulfs, right? That we've we've done a better job, though still a lot of work to go, uh, in terms of helping students graduate from high school even in terms of helping students apply to and, uh, and even matriculate to institutions of higher ed. Um, but yet we're not seeing the same results uh, in terms of persistence and graduation. So, so I'm wondering from your 
uh, from your end, what do you think that we can do better uh, in the K-12 system to prepare students to be ready to thrive when they, when they arrive at UT Austin or when they arrive at their local state uh, university? It's a great question. And um, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm involved in two uh, charter school uh, uh, organizations here in Austin, uh, Idea Public Schools and Montessori for All, which is the first public Montessori school in the city. And it's actually diverse as well. So we've had a number of challenges in trying to keep that moving, right? But one thing we've come to realize, especially uh, working in at IDEA, because IDEA is a K through 12 system, right? Um, is that you, you, the traditional model of saying, okay, your senior's graduating, peace out, see you later, good luck, doesn't really work. And so we've actually learned over time, we need to keep our students close to us. And if, if they're in the same community, that's great. But if they're far away, there's so many stories I've heard of teachers who have helped students move in. They've gotten their cars, driven up to the campus with the students' uh, uh, stuff and with their parents and helped them with that transition. So we're beginning to realize that it's kind of a problem to think that, okay, now you've been in our system for 12 years, we're going to let you go and just let everything just kind of drop by the side. Now, my own experience in, in higher ed, I went to school in the same city I went to high school in. And so guess what? I did have the support still there. I still had my teachers. In fact, my uh, first year in college was greatly subsidized because one of my teachers uh, had me do a job babysitting his kids and he paid me well for it. And I realized he was doing that because he was trying to support me how he could. And he did a great job with that. So those kinds of supports, you know, the idea that we traditionally just drop um, the educational experience when they turn uh, 18 and go to college, I think we need to reexamine that. We need to think about systems that would allow us to uh, make sure our teachers stay in contact with our students, that they are able to support them. Because a lot of times, if I'm in brand new on a campus, especially at PWI, I'm having a hard time adjusting and finding resources. The people I trust are back at my high school. And I now I'm told I have to kind of let that person go. Um, but to actually say it's part of the position, like part of the job is now thinking about how do we help our students transition from high school to higher education. And that's why the relationships that you've built over all these years in the K-12 system are so important. So I've seen more schools do that, thinking about, you know, uh, transition experiences or ways to support teachers who do this kind of work, to literally give teachers time to help visit students or stipends to help support students so they can go visit and so on and so forth. I mean, I always thought that was a kind of a weird thing to just say to people at a certain point in time, okay, that relationship that you built over four years in high school is done with. We're not doing it anymore. Now make a new one, especially at large places like University of Texas, right? It's a very large institution. It takes a long time for students to figure it out. And I actually do find that my students who come from uh, wealthier backgrounds often do have that support because they're being taught by teachers who went to the institutions and have connections and will get on the phone and call people like me because they know us. And I'm like, do all of our students have that access? I don't think they do. Uh, the other thing I think is important is just to also really um, understand that higher education, I think, has had this um, sort of perspective that, well, students aren't ready for us. Instead of realizing we actually are quite inept, I would say, at making sure our institution serves our students correctly, right? And so I often tell our students, I, I use Terry Yoso's uh, community cultural wealth model a lot. And I say, you know, you've come to our institution with all the things that you need. Uh, the navigational capital, linguistic capital, 
those things that you've generated to get to higher education, you have that in spades. Don't let us come and tell you you're lacking something. Don't let us tell us you're not college ready. Instead, tell us, actually, for me to get to where I started to where I am today, I have all that I need. You're not really coming to address the needs that I have as a student. And to sort of see as a two-way street instead of a one-way thing. Like, I, I really get perturbed with that concept, right? Because it just puts all the responsibility on a system that's inherently unequal and says, well, you know, you're not ready for us. Instead of saying, you know what? We never created the space for you. This space was created to actually keep many of you out. And now that you're here, we got to start thinking about what that means and start adjusting our practices. And I've challenged my colleagues, uh, both on an individual and institutional level, why do we have those kinds of uh, mindsets still? I'm, I'm working with a, with a group of uh, professors here at UT Austin who are looking through a psychological lens, educational lens, looking and sort of seeing what is it about teachers' mindsets in college that actually set up students for failure. You know, if I walk in and I believe because of your background and your experience that you're not ready for this, I don't actually do the job of actually educating you. Well, then I'm already setting you up for failure. You know, if I look at it and say, look, I have all this knowledge. I have all these pedagogical tools. I have all these resources. How can I set up students the best way to be successful is a much healthier growth mindset to have versus in saying, well, you know, we're on our ivory tower and you've got to come sort of come up to our level instead of saying, we have everything that's needed to make those students come to our level. And I would actually point out, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from MSIs, minority-serving institutions, uh, Hispanic-serving uh, institutions, HBCUs. Uh, a lot of these schools look at our students and say, we already know that your experience in K-12 hasn't been equal to students who've had you know, high-resource areas. So we're not going to have the attitude that you need to get up to our level we're actually going to make it our job to bring you up to the level you need to be, which is why I, there are so many places like Xavier University in New Orleans that can get more black students into medical school than the elite PWIs in four years time. Cause they've never had the attitude. Well, you know, you're deficient. They're like, well, no, the system is deficient. And we know if we apply ourselves and use the right pedagogical approaches, we can get you up to speed. And that's what it comes down to. So ultimately, it really is about an inward reflection for elite institutions like mine, like UCLA, like the Harvards out there, right? So really make sure that we're doing all we can and sort of dropping this attitude that students aren't prepared for us. That's a huge, huge uh, problem. And it's often structural, but it's also in the mindset of how a lot of our teachers approach our students. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought up um, Terry also in the community cultural wealth. I, I have my students um, dig deep into into that particular um, idea because so many of my students, my students are predominantly students of color and they go off to schools where um, they're surrounded by folks who they're not used to being around. And that's been recently in my teaching career, that's been sort of a, a, a point of focus for me is helping students see all the strengths that they have so that they don't believe and internalize all these deficiencies that um, the college might imply um, that they have. So, so I'm glad you brought that up. And you also um, mentioned a bit about your high school teachers and the, and the support that you had. Now, that I, I think is, is, is something that a lot of folks could relate to, but a lot of other students, especially students of color, might not be able to relate to the idea of having 
high school classes where the teachers set up a, an environment that they feel valued in and, and seen in. So we're wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about what can teacher preparation programs do to help make sure that more teachers are, are creating those environments where students of color can thrive and feel comfortable being themselves and being seen. Yeah, it's a great question, Manuel. And I, and I think uh, primarily about the fact that you look at all these outlays about the teaching workforce, you know, 80% of teachers are white women, right? And if we don't ever trouble people's sort of uh, preconceptions and implicit biases, the inequities that people have experienced and have normalized are perpetuated, right? So here at UT Austin, our principalship uh, preparation programs and our teacher education programs are really uh, focused on cultural relevance and also understanding one's identity, right? Um, so many times we have these conversations and well, people are like, well, why are these students struggling? And I point to the work that Angela Venezuela and Nolan Cabrera have done in uh, Arizona about the ethnic studies that took place there. Um, these amazing turnarounds with students, uh, you know, retention rates in high school, uh, uh, grades. And what is it all about? It's about students learning about themselves. It's about students actually knowing that they are people of value. And if you've never, ever had to examine your own privilege or your own uh, uh, implicit biases, it's normal to you, especially if you occupy, you come from a place in society where your identity is valued, right? Um, it doesn't seem necessary or important, but then you say to yourself, if every time you see a person like you in a book, if, if you even come up, right? It's something negative versus, oh my gosh, I didn't know about the genius of my community. I didn't know the things that are happening, not just historically 100 years ago, but contemporarily. And I always talk about the fact that I was really fortunate to go to school in East Austin, right? East Austin is a Latino community. And literally the people who were in politics and making policy decisions in the city went to my school. So there was no, <laughs> you know, whatever the book said, Literally, the people on the, on the school board and the city council and the people who work at universities went to this place. It uh, was an incredibly uh, inspiring and motivating thing. And as you probably can tell, I'm not Latino. I'm African-American. But it didn't matter. I just knew that this is a community that I was a part of. And that was inspiring to me. And I never felt that I couldn't do anything because I had too many examples of people me, around me doing things. And, and so I've had a chance and I had this really great experience not too long ago here in Austin, um, Richard Rothstein, who wrote uh, The Color of Law, which is an amazing book about sort of the residential segregation that has led into educational segregation and so on and so forth. And we had a panel, uh, a friend of mine, Mark Lopez, did a great film about this called Segregated by Design, which is basically a 20-minute film about the book. And so it was uh, Mark, uh, my friend Sherwin Patton, uh, it was Richard Rothstein, and we were all talking about this, and we had a discussion, and I was in the room and was kind of talking to people and people were excited. This is right before we can hit with COVID. Uh, and there was about, I don't know, a group of students that were probably about 10, 15 students. And they were, first of all, mad young, like they were clearly in high school. And second of all, they were dicked out in Harvard gear. And I'm like, okay. I was like, so y'all like Harvard or something? They're like, uh, it turns out they were a debate, a debate team that went to Harvard and did a, uh, did a debate tournament up there. And it was a multiracial group. It was like the, Model United Nations, students from every ethnic background in the group. And we were talking explicitly about uh, this historical, structural patterns of segregation that have impacted their own lives. 
because Rothstein actually writes about Austin, Texas in his book. Um, and at the very end of the conversation, um, their coach came up. He's a white woman. And she says, you know, this is such an important thing that I students understand that. And I said to her, it's so important that you, as a white woman, are in this space, bringing your students here and reinforcing these ideas. Because if we leave it to the uh, folks of color to do the work, just like if we said, you know, it's really important to have equal rights for everybody, men and women, and we just ask women to do the work of that, that's problematic. And so when I saw her sort of uh, take on that issue and say, you know what, I'm invested in seeing uh, equity play out for all communities, particularly communities of color, that act of solidarity and allyship was super important for me to see. So I think really sort of bringing forth those kinds. One thing I've been talking about a lot in my work is the importance of white anti-racist role models, right? Um, if you are a person of color and you wish to combat uh, inequity, there are lots of ways to do it, right? But could you, for instance, be a conservative person, conservative politically, conservative, you know, religiously or spiritually, and still be an advocate for equity? Absolutely. Who's out there doing that? That's the challenge. And so I'm always looking for people I can say, you don't have to belong to this political stripe. You don't have to have this identity. You know, you can be a person from a rural area who supports this. And I'm really lucky in my experience to have had uh, people like that. Um, had a great conversation uh, with the author here. And, uh, this guy, um, he wrote a couple of books on um, lynchings in Texas. And the amazing thing, uh, Eddie looks like Doug Dynasty. He's got the trucker hat. He's got the big old beard. He's a good old boy. He's married to a black woman. He has black children. And he talks about, you know, this is something that I've always cared about because I care about equity, right? And I'm like, Eddie, the fact that you're talking about this is so important because when other white people see you say this, you're giving them a place to anchor into. And it's important to see people doing that kind of work. So I, I just think really uh, bringing uh, to the fore those white anti-racist role models who have done the work, right? Who have done the self-examination, who understand systems of privilege and inequity and can talk about it with comfort is another important thing because I don't want our students to ever feel the only people who understand or can appreciate or embrace uh, issues of um, equity are people who have minoritized uh, identities. It's a problem for everybody and everybody has responsibility to do the work. And, and quite frankly, my work on cultural taxation says you, can, you cannot keep on asking the black and brown and Asian and Native American people to do all this work. It's gotta be distributed. Just like you can't ask the queer people to do all the work. You can't ask people with disabilities to do all the work. You can't ask the women to do all the work. It's got to be equitably distributed. So um, really making sure that people have done, and it's, it's painful, right? Because the way that society works is that we get imbued with privileges and they become invisible to us. And we've all read Piggy McIntosh, but actually I think that's a really important thing to start with. You've got to understand how people, because your identities navigate the space with privilege that are invisible. And once they understand that, they can start doing the work of deconstructing those problematic uh, implicit biases and then come to a point where they're actually able to say, this is inequity. And as a person who actually holds that privilege, I can call it out and I can work against it. And that's what we're working towards, uh, a world where a student can come to a, a school and realize everybody in the school, regardless of their background, is able to help and support me. 
Yeah, Rich, uh, so much there. And uh, it's been such a privilege having you on the show with us today and just sharing some of your thoughts and wisdom about, you know, in this incredibly unique and in some ways precarious time uh, that we were in, um, how these issues of equity and issues of access are playing out uh, in the higher education system and what that has to do with those of us who work in the K-12 system. Um, but before we go, I, uh, I think, you know, there's probably many folks who, who are being introduced to you uh, as they watch this show. And there might be some folks who are, who are looking at the camera or looking at the screen and saying, you know, that, that guy looks kind of familiar. And I could imagine if there if they're people who uh, perhaps like watching Jeopardy or like watching uh, Wheel of Fortune or maybe uh, watch uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire Once Upon a Time, uh, they, they may have seen you. And maybe I didn't get the shows right, but, but folks might not know that Dr. Richard Reddick is also uh, infamous for his uh, many appearances on game shows. Uh, did, I, did I get the shows right there, Rich? Or did I You did get them? the shows right. Yeah, you got them all right. Um, in fact... Um it's funny because in the last, uh, you know, every couple of years, the stories disappear because the class that came in with that story, I'll talk about it in orientation, they'll know about it, and it just kind of goes away. I assume everybody knows. Uh, but I remember distinctly, um, this year, we had a student in our honors program plan to honors, uh, Marshall. Uh, Marshall was on the college uh, week uh, Wheel of Fortune. I mean, sorry, uh, Jeopardy. And... This is going to sound super nerdy, but yes, I actually belong to a Jeopardy Champions trivia game uh, group here in Austin. There's a bunch of us. I'm the scrub of the group. I only won one day. I, I got six day champions on that on that team, and they were like fire. And they were like, "Yo, you know, Marshall is actually going to be on this week." And so uh, he shot me a message and said, "I'm going to be on this week." And I'm like, "Yo, this is fantastic! I'm so proud of you. I'm excited." He's like, "Well, Dr. Reddick, you might remember you talked about this at orientation." So I was like, "I want to do that." So dude went on. Uh, and he got pretty far. I don't think he got to the finalists, but he got pretty far in the process. Uh, so, yeah, that kind of came up again. And, of course, Millionaire is back. It's like this new celebrity version of Millionaire. Uh, and it, it's, it is really funny, Jeffrey, because sometimes, like I said, I'll be literally saying something. Somebody said, well, this guy was on Jeopardy. They're like, he was? Uh, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Um, and, of course, it sets this bar, of course. So it means, well, what do you not know? Uh, but it, it's been fun. In fact, we just downloaded the uh, Wheel of Fortune game on our PS4. So I tell the kids, get them ready. It's like, look, got a legacy to follow up with. You got to do what dad did back in the day. So bring in those stacks, you know. So I'm training them up, man. But uh, millionaire people, if you want to do the regular version again, have to come back and do a reappearance. But it's been a lot of fun. And, and, and yeah, those the, the ironic thing, of course, is that I was also in Win Ben Stein's Money. Win Ben Stein's Money you might remember the psychic on that show was Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah. Uh, he's doing millionaire now. So it's like, let's all coming together uh, <laughs> in a weird way. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that's, that was, that was the day. In fact, you might remember I did uh, both uh, millionaire and jeopardy when I was in grad school um, at Harvard. So uh, lots of memories. In fact, in the hundredth anniversary, uh, you know, of the ed school, uh, they have memories. And I, the memory I have was that on millionaire folks might remember this, uh, you get the four lifelines. And um, during the time in the green room, I told, we were talking to each other and we were like, what's your favorite category? I'm like, space program. Anything about the space program? I like, know. The, the thing I don't know anything about is candy. And did you know when I was on, when I was on uh, supposed to be a millionaire, 
like the $200 question was what flavor are red hots? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, and I was like, okay, I gotta do the 50, 50 or whatever. I mean, the, the poll the audience. And of course it was like 99% cinnamon. So I told the story to people and I was actually in a class, teaching a class and the class went to Gutman library to watch it on TV uh, during that section. And I had told uh, John Collins, who's a librarian at Harvard at the time about this. And as soon as that question came up right on cue, he came up with a bowl of red hots. So it was just like, wow, <laughs> I'm getting roasted here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, those are great memories and um, uh, very lucky to have had those opportunities. And um, yeah, I just need to get back in the game and try and look for another opportunity to get back in it. So, well, I believe you have opportunity right now. Actually, I, I believe Jeff has a a Jeopardy style question for you to see if you still got it. <laughs> oh, damn! Yeah, we're, oh, this man. is yes. uh, this is on the fly. We're gonna we're gonna assume that uh, you you picked. Um, Obvious questions for 200, Alex, uh, right right now. And uh, so here we go, Rich. Uh, this show not only offers the latest news, analysis, and unstandardized takes on education, but it also features the dopest of guests and just might be the only show of its kind to simultaneously feature three black male educators who studied at Harvard on screen at the same time. Hmm. I'm going to need to think about it for a second, but if I, if I go back through my memory, I'm going to go with all the above, all my money on that question. Final answer. <laughs> I think we, I think we switched shows there, but, uh, but we'll, we'll accept that answer. The judges have what ruled is all the above? In, in your favor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is correct. That is correct. That's dope. That's dope. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, um, I will definitely have you guys on speed dial when I get on the next show, uh, to back me up with any educational knowledge. But this is a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this. Uh, I think this is a fantastic uh, service you're doing. And I'm looking forward to uh, communicating with folks. I'm at richard.reddick at austin.utexas.edu. Just go to UT directory and look me up. You can find me that way. Uh, love to be in touch with folks about what you're doing. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you again for being on our show. We greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. It's good seeing both of you guys. It's been a long time, but we've got to keep it moving. Chopping up with you guys is a lot of fun. Uh, peace out, everybody. Hook them horns, and uh, we'll <laughs> see you around. All that. All, All right, that. folks. Uh, that does it for today's seminar. Up next will be our class dismissed. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for Class Dismissed, where we like to shout out folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. And today's Class Dismissed, we really want to think about those students in higher ed that we um, you know, heard a bit about through, through our guests in the seminar and just address the fact that a lot of students across the country are graduating from college right now, some the first in their families to do so, some earning their doctorates and, and the first doctors in the family. And because of COVID-19 and the impact that it has had, so, so many of our college graduates are missing out on their commencement ceremonies. We wanna definitely give a shout out to everybody that is both feeling the pain of not being able to be in person for these ceremonies, for these landmark occasions, but also to everybody who is trying their best to somewhat the best they can make up for that. So some universities, of course, are are trying to do virtual graduations. Some are trying to have an option in the fall or the winter for graduates to come back and have an in-person ceremony. We know that there, nothing will replace 
graduating and having your your friends and family there in person and taking all those pictures and doing all of that. Um, however, we want to shout out everybody that's trying their best to to um, try to have something to recognize everybody that's that's graduating from college. I know uh, my wife and I we we're really really close to one of my former high school students. We you know I've known her since eighth grade and and my wife and I have have helped support her through college in the sense of being there for her, for her various performances. This 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 uh, student has been through a lot in their life, and we were like looking forward to this this year's commencement so much because um, this student has been through so much and college graduation was going to be just magnificent and that's one of the ones that got canceled because of the COVID-19 closure so we definitely feel the pain of all the families who were looking forward to seeing their loved ones graduate um, and also those college graduates who who did so much and overcame so many things such as what uh, Dr. Reddick was referring to, especially those uh, marginalized students and those students of color. So shout out to all of you. We know it's it's an impossible situation to, to really um, make up in any kind of virtual way, but shout out to you nonetheless. Your, your achievements are not at all being um, forgotten just because of this uh, commencement situation. Your, your achievements and those degrees and those titles that some of you are now earning, uh, whether it be doctor of this or, or what have you, all of those are, are solid and firm and we're gonna acknowledge that regardless of what the actual ceremonies look like or don't look like. So shout out to everybody that is experiencing that. Yeah, I will definitely echo that, Manuel. There's, you know, there's very few times in your life as you, you know, as you get older when really everybody kind of pauses and comes together to celebrate you and and graduation, whether it be, you know, from undergrad or from from graduate school or with your doctorate is one of those times. And so my heart really goes out to the folks who are who are missing that at least in the physical sense this year and we just want to, you know, just just give a, a we see you to all of those folks. So um, so, folks, thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you uh, are a first time viewer or listener to all the above, then uh, it's time to start digging in the crates because there's a lot more where this episode came from. So, as always, you can find all of our content on our website, which is aotashow.com. We uh, are on YouTube. You can subscribe to our YouTube channels and to our YouTube channel and make sure you turn on those notifications so that uh, you can always be on top of the latest from all the above. And of course, every week you're going to see postings and commentary and videos on our social media pages. So on Facebook and on Twitter, we're at at AOTA show. Um, on both of those. So make sure you check it out, share, like, subscribe, do all you can to help us and we'll keep bringing the great content to you. And with that, we'll see you next time.